Hello, my name's Karen O'Connor, and you're listening to Isn't That Interesting? Welcome. I'm here today with a long time no see, Ryan. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, so today I really wanted to get you on to talk about stuff because I like doing the podcast by myself, but I tend to be able to express myself a bit better when I'm talking to somebody and I can bounce off somebody and somebody can ask questions. That's why I like doing interviews. And we tend to think along the same lines as well, which is which makes life a lot easier too. So I want to It's good for a podcast. It's good for a it's great for a podcast, isn't it? They tend to be quite long, which is really good. Um so I wanted to talk to you today about two things. Mm-hmm. One of them is I wanted to get to the bottom of. So I'm I'm going to say what happened here. So I said, oh, to somebody, I'm settling on my house soon. And their response was, congratulations. Can you lend me some money? And I find that a bit off. Just makes me feel really off. <laughs> can't get to the bottom of why it feels like it's and if it's not can you lend me some money it's about me spending money oh you can go out and buy your new car oh you can go out on this holiday oh you can do this there's an immediate requirement for me to do something to take some action Mm. which i find it interesting that you would take issue with the that the immediate requirement for action because yeah you're such a spontaneous decisive person yourself whenever there's a problem your your immediate response is, let's do something about it it's never really sit around and, and wait so i i do find that interesting does that strike you as being an an, an interesting kind of contrast there it, it did as i said it i was like ah, oh, but i'm the one who's always in action so why does that necessarily bother me and that's the thing mm. i don't think it is that i think it's something beyond that it's not so much the requirement for action it's more it's almost like it's wrong to have money and not spend it oh no that's what i can't get to the bottom of there's a a feeling like if you've got money you've got to immediately spend it and there is a pressure to do that but also that that it's not the first time this person said to me can you lend me some money as a response to, oh, I've sold a house or we've got this big income coming in. It's not the first time. And they think it's funny. I've got to say that they think they're being funny, but I feel like there's some mm. passive aggressive something going on behind it. I do have a thought, actually. And the first thought is that for you, you've often said in the past that money in and of itself isn't really very attractive to you. It's the the fact that money represents freedom to do what you want and have what you want and be what you want. So my first thought is that when you've got money, which is this bucket load of freedom, ability to do whatever you want, and then someone comes along and says, yes, but have you considered that these things need to happen that you haven't planned on and therefore their responsibilities, which is the opposite of freedom. It's like all these kind of anchors, these chains, on, on, on what could be a potential amount of freedom would be my first thought. 
And there is a fair bit of don't tell me what to do going on in there as well, in case you hadn't noticed. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention that overtly, but yeah, I think there is a, at least a small amount of... Because <laughs> would your reaction be the same if someone else were to do it? Uh, if this person comes along and makes yeah. these kind of jokes, oh, you've just got a bunch of money. If Would you feel the same way if a different... If, if, if an acquaintance versus a close friend versus say one of the children came to you and said please mother may i have some more of your money please would you <laughs> would you feel the same way is the question <laughs> yes i would do that that's shocking because my i think the next question that i have is your reaction like an annoyance or a resentment it's a little bit of both, mm. yeah. There's a definite irritation there, but there's also a feeling, I suppose I'm left feeling used a little bit. Like a cash cow or a golden goose. Yeah, that kind of thing. Do you feel goose-like? <laughs> Geese can be really nasty, Honk. so yes, quite probably. <laughs> Because I assume it's a one-way street. I assume that when this person gets a bunch of money, if that ever happens, you don't go, go up to them and say, please, sir, oh, madam, may I have some more, Oliver Twist style. I, I assume it's very much a one-way kind of feeling, which, which would lead yes, to this maybe feeling. Maybe that's it, because I wouldn't dream of doing that to somebody. It just feels rude is the basic word I can put against it, but it just feels manipulative. Mm. And it's not so much about relying on somebody else and not being independent. It's not that. It's a little bit to the right of that. You can see I'm going to the right. It's a little bit to the right of that. <laughs> there, there is a little bit about I had a thought too, but... Yeah, go on. So I was, was going to say, I had a thought too, but it was shuffled along to the right by, by shuffling and now I've lost it again. <laughs> it's funny because I personally very rarely talk money with people. Mm. As you're aware, and solicitors are aware, I'm an actor, I'm a theatre person, which means that the most I'll ever talk about it is to make jokes about how poor I am, which is fine, par for the course. I'm actually doing fairly well it's just that's the joke at this point but i never ask for i make a point never to ask for money because of a, of a variety of reasons first of which is i find it quite rude but i think as the person who raised me you must have a similar kind of feeling to it uh, you don't sit down and, and talk about monetary amounts of values of things unless it's to make a really specific point and you certainly wouldn't kick down the door to someone's home and say, hey, you look like you're well off. Care to share that with me? No, and perhaps you're right. Um. Perhaps it just goes back to that, the way that I was brought up is you don't talk about politics and money and religion is the other thing. Politics, money and religion. Do not talk about mm. Top three, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. There is a bit of that. I don't know. Yeah. I just wanted to try to unpack it to see where it went and to see, like that person's, okay, here's where I need to go with it. This is what I can't unpack. I can unpack my response to it, but what I can't unpack 
mm-hmm. is the person's motivation for saying that. That's what I'm struggling with. Because it lands as manipulative. It feels manipulative. And like I've always said to you for, do not ever try to manipulate me. I can spot it at 100 paces in the dark, blindfolded with my back turned. Don't do it. And this lands mm. as manipulative. Okay. It strikes me as the difference. I can't remember the terms for it at the moment, so I'm just going to use my own. But the, the difference between hard nose and soft nose. So when you, people generally fall into one or two categories. They give hard nose to things, or they give soft nose to things. And it's generally their kind of response, whether they're active or passive in discussing things with people that they don't want to discuss. For instance, if I went over to your house and I said, hey, I would like to stay here for the foreseeable future and possibly make a nuisance of myself, as I did for 18 years, you could give me a hard no, which is just to come straight out and say, no, absolutely not. You may not do that. But the soft no variety of that is, is oh, let me have a think about it. I'll, I'll get back to you in, in a couple of days. And when you say that, that's your version of saying, and it's your understanding that I would understand that's a no, but it's not, it's a soft no. You know the difference there? Because the soft no also, as a part of the social, social contract of soft no's, is you don't bring up questions like that unless you, you do a bunch of other social hurdles before that question in order to make sure that all, that all the gates are open. <laughs> Whereas I think the, oh, you've got money, give it to me is a very hard no kind of response. And it expects the hard no. <laughs> yeah. I very much doubt that the, oh yes, absolutely have some money, is the common response to that question. <laughs> but it's, I think for a soft no person or a soft no topic, which politics, religion, money must all be, because otherwise it would turn into absolute chaos at a family dinner. It, it, do, it is rude because you're supposed to ask soft no questions and not come roaring out the gate with a hard no question, which is rude. <laughs> I think that's my kind of initial thought of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the same person, that would make sense because the same person prides themselves on, if they're a bit bored, they throw in a verbal hand grenade into the conversation and watch the conversation take off. Yeah. Because <laughs> so... <laughs> I think for thought? someone who's, yeah, uh, for someone who is used to hard nose and, and giving them and receiving hard nose, soft nose must be like absolutely hilarious to watch because from the perspective of someone who could just say, just ask and they'll tell you yes or no, it's that simple. Watching the complex social loop-de-loops that people go through in order to ask what is on the surface a very simple question they just don't want to ask must be hilarious from that given perspective. But for a soft no person, you're like, you're incredibly rude. Learn some manners, wear a napkin, wash your hands. Because there is a real feeling of brute force to... To, yeah, well, interestingly, I would never consider myself to be a soft no kind of person. I don't think anybody would consider me to be a it soft is no kind of person. It's just why I think it is, it must be confined to a few topics yeah. for you, based almost exclusively on your upbringing. Do not talk religion, politics, money. 
<laughs> yeah, Whereas well, if someone came over to your house and started talking like, if they said, I'm completely anti-monarchy and I think that the coverage in the news about the monarchy is ridiculous, regardless of your feelings on the subject, you'd be like, oh, okay, let's take a step back now. That's a little bit racy to begin a conversation with. <laughs> we need a soft no here. <laughs> regardless of your feelings because you just don't do that that's not what people do and i think the, if the assumption is that everyone has to walk through these hurdles on these particular things and then they don't it feels like it's manipulative because that's you, the assumption that's the baseline of what everyone has to do on these given topics i think sex must be up there as well personally i would expect that yeah yeah, probably. Oh. Certainly with, I think it's more with particular people as well. But if you were out at a bar and someone came up to you and you were having a, a lovely conversation, you met them 15 minutes ago and they said, oh, I'm going to, that guy looks like he's really good in the missionary position, which is fine. That's fine. But it's completely, that's just, you just don't do that. You lead up to these conversations really slowly, if at all. <laughs> <laughs> so there must so be a few topics in which it, it, it isn't so much sex to be honest most of my friends are at least 10 okay that's fair. than me and a lot of them are still on the market <laughs> so our conversations can be quite interesting that's fair it, uh, another one is you're of course you're a woman and i'm a man and conversations amongst the gender norms is very different when it comes to sex between the, the oh, between gosh, you, yeah. our two experiences, yeah. Oh, that so, was something continue. I wanted to talk about. I was reading somewhere the other day. I've been reading a few really good books at the moment on genders and sex inequality. And one I'm reading at the moment stated that according to now, where was it? It was in the latest Julia Gillard book. So, not here. Oh yeah, either. I saw that actually. I was, I was planning to read it. Really mm. good. But somebody in there says that according to neurological research, there is no difference between the male brain and the female brain. The only difference in any brain is pregnant or not pregnant. And the way men and women think differently I... is entirely caused by the way they've been brought up and what they've been trained in, which when I look at you in particular, as a man, you were trained by me to not think like a bloke. You were trained to put yourself in other people's shoes. Have a think about that. Do this. And you turn out mm. to be an actor and an artist. <laughs> that was really interesting. <laughs> I think I, I, I failed quite miserably with one of your sisters, but I think that's her own thing. But the other one is she can stand on her own two feet. They both can. But anyway. <laughs> I need to delete that bit, Sarge. Just delete that bit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, they're not going to like that. It'll start arguments. The, um. the other bit. <laughs> up to where I finished talking about Ryan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's absolutely, that's what we were taught when, when I was doing neuroscience, is that structurally speaking, there's, there's absolutely no difference between the male brain and the female brain. There are chemical changes according to various physiological differences, pregnancy being the most drastic, which is understandable considering you're acting as a aircraft carrier for human beings. But 
there's really no kind of structural difference there. There's no reason that people act differently aside from hormones. And I find it really telling that giving each, if you gave a man more testosterone, it doesn't make him more manly, even in the physical sense. If you gave a woman more estrogen, it doesn't make her more feminine, even in the physical sense. It's, I find that really interesting. And a lot of these things really are just trained into people. And it's so lazy. Most of these sexist things or the sex difference kind of things. Like I was reading a whole article on the women or girls mature more quickly than boys do read a whole article on it because there are a couple of points, a couple of studies that show that's generally speaking, the trend, but there's very little physiological reason for that. And one of the rising assumptions is that we just train that we just train that into kids because we say, oh, girls, you're supposed to be more mature. I expected you to be more mature. You should be more mature and you'll get your act together. Whereas boys are like, they weren't mature until they're 25 at a minimum, maybe 37. Let's see, it'll happen <laughs> at all. I know plenty of men. Yeah, I've met plenty of men who are the same now that they were at 14. And I, I think that's so lazy, <laughs> that's so lazy. But yeah, which I think is really interesting when you do talk about how sexism obviously still exists and the way people respond differently to different genders because it's just entirely trained at a specific point. It's just entirely trained, especially when you get to post 60 or so, you're back to being practically identical. Like kids under, what was the age? Kids under about four, just there's really no difference, basically. Apart from they've got a couple of different organs. They're just, there's just, gender is just a concept. It, it doesn't apply to them. There's no difference in their activities and their, their levels of energy or their responses to different stimuli. There is a lot of different response to the way that people approach them, but that's something else. But it's also the same after about 60. Once menopause finishes in, in women, men and women become practically identical again in every metric. It's ridiculous. There's no if except in life expectancy, which is generally to do with whether or not boys will be boys or won't be boys. A long-suffering look, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> you, you struggled with exactly this reason, didn't you? Because I remember all four of you coming home saying they're so childish. They're so childish. Yes. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> okay. What's the but? Uh, there's. I, I'm not sure, and I'm still unpacking it to this day, because there was a big part of they're so childish and they were, but I also, I didn't enjoy myself as much as they did. And I, I look back and I'm not certain how much of my response was a childish perspective of what childishness is. You know what I mean? And it's something I've been thinking about recently. It's interesting that you bring it up is when you look back on it, you can't be certain whether the responses that you have two things when you're that age are only fueled by a childish perspective and understanding a shallow understanding of what it means to be a child, as opposed to being, I'm rambling. I'm completely rambling. This makes no sense. It's Point is, 
I have no idea. The short answer was yes. <laughs> it particularly doesn't because if you met most of those guys now, what would your response be? I don't think I'd hang out with them. Um, there you go. <laughs> and probably one of the first things that you'd Sorry, say let's... is they're really immature and childish. Yeah. Which wasn't to say that I wasn't immature or childish also oh, on Lord, retros no. in retrospect. No, no, no. I remember being told off in chapel at once. Yeah, that was... <laughs> no, but yeah, I... What? What did you get told off for? Oh, I was conducting with a pencil. <laughs> Had a pencil out. And... Which in retrospect is, is fine, if weird, but I got told off for it. <laughs> <laughs> they got bucket duty for swaying, didn't they? They were swaying to some hymn or other. Yeah, there was <laughs> there's a lot of discipline. There's a lot of discipline in, in chapel. It was Mrs. Orden too. Came up to me with a big moustache. It's like, stop that. <laughs> and I was like, sorry? It was like, stop that. And I was like, all right. <laughs> See me afterwards. All right. <laughs> Could have just left it there and would have stopped. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. So, wait, how did we get onto the sexism thing? Oh, just different brain. Because of the neurological, the neuroscience thing that I'd seen and you were talking about immaturity or, I don't know, I went off on a tangent. But, yeah, <laughs> I, I did find that interesting because it's something that, both your dad and I have struggled with in Australia is with the immaturity of a lot of men over here. Yes. I'm just about to just yeah. alienate most of my listeners. <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, it's, it's not a universal rule. No, but <laughs> I don't understand why you'd want to parent your partner. I'm really sorry. I would not want another child in a relationship. And a lot of women have got that. And a lot of women expect that. I don't get it. I have heard the same thing. And I find it quite sad. <laughs> I find it very sad uh, as an expectation that people have. And, and that's the only reason that it continues because it perpetuates itself. Like this is only doable because the, that's the expectation. Like, and it's, there are problems in both genders, men listening, and it's not universal. I'm sure that you, you do the dishes and I'm sure you do your own laundry and that you, you contribute an equal amount to maintaining your live-in situation. And you don't necessarily walk up to strangers and ask for them for money just right off the bat, but just be better. <laughs> Australian men be better and I think a lot of it is is to do with how shallow male friendships are really? Why? when you look at it really closely again this is a whole this is a whole discussion but like in my experience like the function of a friendship a, a real kind of close friendship is that you form a group of people that monitors its own behavior right and I say that because I've been reading a bunch of studies about small children in, in generally in kindergarten age. And one of the trends that you get is that if you've got a bunch of small children and there is a teacher nearby 
that monitors them and swoops in when one of them says, oh, that miss, I assume miss, because it's a female dominated industry. But if you know, one of the kids comes up and says, this person was very mean to me and they, they pushed me into the sand and now I've got a sore knee. Uh, and then the teacher comes in and dispenses judgment. Generally, the function of that group is more unbalanced than it would be if someone, if they didn't have an adult nearby. Groups of children without adult supervision form their own method of resolving problems. And there's less difficulty with bullying and things because uh, a child's response to a bully is very simple. You ostracize them. <laughs> you just exile them. You just buy, <laughs> which is on the surface to us adults, it's, it's a very kind of surface level, short term, doesn't resolve the issue kind of response. But in, when you think about it, if you're in a group of kids and their response to someone who is a bully or is problematic in any way is ostracizing them, then I think kids learn very quickly not to do that. And there are exceptions. There are uh, reasons that some kids are, are ostracized that they, they can't help. That doesn't necessarily affect all kids the same way. Although it is interesting to note that in the playground, when you've got self-monitored groups of uh, children, individuals with say ADHD become leaders of groups rather than ostracized outcasts, which I found very interesting. Yeah, overwhelmingly, they become the risk takers and leaders of groups because they've done things before they've pushed boundaries and they know where is safe because they've already gone out and pushed everything. They're the ones to give drive and direction to small. Anyway, it's not important at this point, but it's an, an interesting conversation for another day. But adult men have a group of friends who are almost exclusively monitored and supported by an exterior group. They don't have to monitor and support themselves. They don't, they're not required to do that. So when you've got a group of men who have spouses that do everything for them and their main role at home is to drink beer, watch football and, and yell at their friends, that's, it's got the same problem because any justice administered, any problem that arises is solved outside of that social group. And so they lose a lot of ability to solve problems on their own, particularly emotional problems, because their method of, if one of them has an argument with another one, they'll either fight about it, like physically, or they'll go away, not talk to each other for a while and then come back again. And they can do that because they've got other people in their lives who do everything for them and look after their emotional needs. What struck me as you were talking then is it loses the morality of the group. There's no need for a group morality. No. And that's like when you've got a group of people who everyone in that group relies on everyone else in that group in order to balance everything. Everyone has a different role. Everyone has a different ability to support the group in some way, like you would in, in, a, in, a, an, in either a, a pre-civilized society or in a kindergarten. You learn about making sure that everyone's taken care of and you learn how to take care of people. It's not difficult when you have a fight with your friend to sit down and say, look, I'm sorry, <laughs> no strings attached, I'm sorry. Our friendship is more important than this argument that, the, that we're having. I wanna make it up to you, let's have a beer and forget about the whole thing. It's not difficult. It's not difficult at all to do that. But how many Australian blokes 
of a, of a particular creed, could you see actually sitting down and without prompting say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll take responsibility for my actions. And they don't need to. They don't need to at all. They're not the ones who buy Christmas presents. They're not the ones who write letters. They're not the ones who invite friends over to stay or make dinner for their friends. They're not the ones who actually give anything. They only receive. And I think that's a very, I was going to say problematic, but I don't think problematic really sums up how much of an issue that is because you're not raising people at that point. They're livestock. <laughs> they just give. Sorry, they just take and they don't give. And that's, I think it, it comes back as well to what you were saying about this person who comes up and, and asks for money. It's not that's necessarily a, a toxic thing because that must be perfectly fine in a group of people that all are on the same level about things like that. If they're all on the same level about things like that, if you can go in and just start a conversation and just be like, hard no, and that's fine and that's the established norm, then there's nothing wrong with that. But if you leave that expectation going to another group of friends and you're encountering someone who is a, a soft no, and they don't have someone nearby who is a soft no, if someone gets offended, like if you said, actually, I feel very uncomfortable about you asking in that way, and I'd prefer it if you never asked me for money ever again. Do you think that would throw a spoke in that particular dynamic? How many times must that occur? Because this response, this hard no response, either relies upon one of two kind of replies to that. One of which is hard no. The other of which is, oh, it's funny you should ask me. Yeah, I don't. Because the third response is, is to be like, actually, that's not good. I'm going to give you a soft no now, and then I'm never going to talk to you again. Because that's the soft no, no. Yeah. And, and the, the fourth response, <laughs> uh, which is the one I generally employ, is to just ignore it. To just, And then I might later say, of which I have done on a few, around a few things, do you know how that lands for people or for me in particular? Does it change the action? When you come in and, uh, and confront that behavior, does it change that? For a short period, mm. not permanently. No. Which implies to me that uh, it's that response, that kind of hard no question is a learned response that's being rewarded in another in another relationship. Um, right. Probably they're, they're close relationships, they're familial relationships. They get what they want by, doing by being like that. Right. Either yep. it's an active reward or it's they get entertainment out of it. <laughs> yeah. I make it sound very sinister, but it's just a learned it's response. Humans. People are people. It's just humans. We've, we've unpacked a lot of things there and I've completely forgotten what the other topic was I wanted to talk about because we've gone all around the world and then over a few hills. Yeah. Like we generally do. I, I don't think any of our talks, like we start by saying we want to talk about this and then we deal with it in the first 13 to 14 minutes and then just yeet ourselves into the mid-atmosphere with a different topic. Yeet ourselves. Yeet, yes. Yeet is a verb, listeners. To yeet, I yeet, you yeet, he, she, it, yeets. Past tense, yot or yoten. Uh, no, it's, it comes from, it's a thing, it's a thing. To yeet is to take a small object and Y-T, 
yeet, just as it sounds. Uh, take a small object and just hurl it without aiming. <laughs> Watch those yeet. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. It's to throw. Mm. Well done. Doubter. Though. Yeah. Know, right? There's know. a bit more kind of subtext to it. There's a bit more subtext, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeeting away. <laughs> Where are we going to yeet yeah. next? Or did you want to finish up in a minute? Yes, where will we eat? Uh, I think we can go for another 10 or 15 minutes. All right, cool, cool, cool. If we can think of a topic. The other topic, <laughs> which kind of leads on from what we were just talking about with the men thing and the way men are brought up, and I don't want to turn this into, oh, no, there was something else I wanted to unpack too. That, going back to that, <laughs> surface conversation i never understand it when a bloke's been out with his mates for a night and i'll say mm. so how is said mate's wife yeah i think they're good did they say anything about her nope okay so what's happening in their lives don't know what did you talk about nothing what do they talk their about? emotional closeness their emotional closeness is something that's taken care of by other people. Right. <laughs> like the feeling of intimacy is almost exclusively a duty by their spouse. Yeah. Uh, they don't and need that, emotional that, closeness from their friends. No, but that puts far too much pressure on their primary relationship with their spouse or their partner because that partner is then responsible 100% for their emotional well-being. It's like having a 12-month-old baby in a grown-up body. For instance, personally, I don't like referring to Joe, my partner, as my wife. I don't like doing it. She is, technically. But the number of jokes I get from men, and I think I've mentioned it before, about the old ball and chain, oh, wait a few years, you'll get sick of her. Those kinds of things is just insane. And it's, I hate it. I just hate it. Because they do see it as someone who is unwillingly attached to them and vice versa. But it's a relationship that they benefit from massively. They benefit massively from being in a relationship with someone. The life expectancy of a man in a relationship is like a decade, two decades higher than a man on his own. But the life expectancy of a woman in a, in a long-term relationship with a man goes down. It's insane. Men are the number one predator against women. That's, that's not the same for men. Men are like heart attacks and then cancer and then three other things. And then maybe accidental death. <laughs> men are more likely to be killed by strangers than spouses. Which is all fine. But what I'm trying to come back to is the fact that it is being tied to someone. And the men a lot of the time kind of view that as a side effect. You grow up, you get a wife. Your wife does a bunch of things in the house. She looks after you. Every day you come back, you make sure that you get your emotional connection from your spouse as much as possible, physical needs met, and then you go out into the world free as a Free as a daisy, able to do what you want. Is that the same for women? Do you go home 
and get to be able to get your emotional needs met? Because that's, as a man, got to say, I don't think it is. I think your emotional needs are met by your friends, not your spouses. Whereas if I, if I was to assume that the average female conversation, meeting up with friends is, oh, tell me about your problems. I think that this person's being really mean to you. I hear you. I hear these feelings of anger and then sadness and blah, 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 blah. I will work through them together. When you go out with, to the pub with your mates, you do not say, oh, I feel that in my relationship, I'm really not listened to. I, I feel very vulnerable as a person in this part of my life. That's not what they talk about. That's not. And it's just ridiculous. Because all of their emotional needs are met by their spouse, who then passes on to their friends. And that perpetuates these groups of, of men that don't hold themselves responsible, that don't monitor themselves because they're constantly being supervised and helped and supported by an outer group of, of people. Because the men don't care about the wives of their friends. And, and honestly, for the pure definition of it, often don't care about their wives. Not really, because you've got to consider someone to be an actual person in order to care about them. No, yeah, that I, was a bit I totally of a agree. Like, um, I was reading something the other week about this female journalist went into an old people's home, aged care centre, whatever the word is now, and she was talking to this old lady who'd been widowed quite a long time ago, and this old lady said to her, she said that a lot of women won't mm. admit it, but we're so glad when our husbands die because now we don't have to do the cooking and the cleaning and the looking after somebody. But don't tell anybody I said that. That's what it's like. And the number of women that yeah. I've met my age and older who are just, or even younger than me, fed up, the kids have left home, but they've found themselves with this child that they're married to that they've still got to do everything for like they're a three-year-old yeah i was gonna say i think that perpetuates the gender difference that's the main difference is one half of the human race can deal with their emotions again statistically speaking the other half of the human race relies on the first to do it for them and hasn't and been taught. for that reason they haven't been taught yeah. how to hand and that's what i find really disturbing if there is no difference in male and female brains what i was going to say is it's going back to the start when we were talking about your friend who brings up this money thing does it strike you as something that one of your female friends would do as opposed to one of your male friends. Is it a masculine activity or a female activity? Good point. Good point. Ah, it's an immature activity, that's... actually. When I'm looking at it back from the conversation that we're having now or we've just had, it's immature and childish. And it's mm, there's no caring about the potential emotional repercussions of behaving that way. There's not an, an acknowledgement that there might be potential repercussions. No. And I think that's what, there's no sophistication in it. <laughs> and I think that's what actually bothers me is it's just, it's immature. It, 
that's it. That's the basic thing. It's really immature. The one that strikes me as being the problem is not necessarily the question itself. It's as you said, when you talk to them and you say, this is, this doesn't work for me. And then they come back a while later and just do it again. again. That's the problem. (laughs) It's fine to make a mistake as a person. It's when you do it, when you know it's a mistake and you know it's going to affect people, that's the problem. And that's the indicator that they don't really have to deal with the consequences of their actions. And I, I think that is the, the problem. That's the problem. I find it exhausting. I just wonder how many women, even younger women, are just completely exhausted by having to have that 100% responsibility for somebody, not for a few years while they're growing up and you're teaching them, but permanently, in perpetuity, never goes away. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could, we, we could talk for ages about how unfair it is, but the answer is, yeah. It's just so unfair. Especially when you take into account like the, all the things about the wage gap, all the things about the requirements of, of labor in a female workforce, when the expectations, they finish the same day of work that a man does. And even if they are paid the same, they go home and they have to look after the kids and clean and do the cooking because I have to say, generally speaking, actually in, my friends aren't really the They're not the metric for this, gotta say. But generally speaking, all of those things are done by the women. They have to go home and look after the kids, which are quite apart from cooking and cleaning and laundering and things. Looking after the kids is hoofed. That's the big one. (laughs) And it's just not reciprocated. In the male population, they don't have to worry about that. It's not. And the thing is, there is no, there's no upside that men can see for behaving that way. Because right now they've got everything they want. Why would they want to give any of that up? They don't get to do the housework. They don't have to think about stuff. They don't have to be responsible. They don't even have to be moral. They don't even have to have a moral compass because they're told what to do. Why would they give that up? It's one of the principles when we discussed immorality when I did philosophy. One of the principles of immorality is never assume malice when you could assume apathy. The problem with, say, racist or sexist institutions isn't the fact that people are actively malicious and supporting them. It's that they, they benefit they benefit from these institutions being in place. Oh, I'm morally against it. But while it's there, I might as well just get a cheeky little benefit out of it. That's the problem. That's quite right. Uh, yeah. And I think we need to finish up there. <laughs> so yeah, probably. We could continue talking, I think, for quite a long time. Yeah, we could. We could. Thank mm. you so much. We need to do this again soon. Because there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. Talking about. <laughs> so much. So much. Yes, we'll, we'll make another time. We'll do one soon. Yeah. yeah, we'll do one soon. And the other thing <laughs> I wanted to talk about fairly soon, and it'd be interesting to talk to you about, would be body image. I'm going to do a little series. Body on image. Yeah, because there's so much to unpack in that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. 
I'd be interested to, to talk about that, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, let's leave that there for now. Thanks, Ryan. Mm. <laughs> Very welcome. Thanks for talking. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some thought-provoking information that can make a difference in your life. See you next time.